Well, as many of you know, if you've been here before, I, uh, my full-time job is as a teacher in Manhattan Beach, and I, I teach English and social studies, but I also teach writing. And I, I've learned so much about how to study the Bible um, because most of the Bible, much of the Bible, are stories. And when you write a story, you have to have kind of an idea of what you're trying to get across. And as I was working with my students just this last few weeks on their narrative stories, I asked them to tell me what the story was really about. A story isn't very interesting if it's just details. I, you know, I mean, and, and you've probably gotten stuck in those conversations where someone says, well, this morning I got up and I had breakfast and then I got dressed and then I got in the car and I drove and I got a cup of coffee, you know, it was the pumpkin spice latte that they always have. And then I got in my car, I got to work, I, you know, did this, that and the other. Is that interesting to anybody? Now, it's what some people, that's what they want to talk about. And, and now t- trust me on this. <laughs> That's, what sixth, that's how they write initially. They just start putting these events run after the other. And so the question that I ask them, and this is when things just really start popping with some of them, is they're, you know, they grasp it. I say, what's your story really about? What is it you're really trying to get across? Who would you want to read this story? And when you understand who you want to read the story, then something starts happening. And it's amazing as kids grasp that, like they write about a soccer game. Or they write about an, uh, a holiday that they went on with their families. And, and when they come to realize it's not about the soccer game, but it's the fact that their mom was in the stands, even though she's a single mom and she's working 20 hours a week, it seems like, but she made the time to be there. All of a sudden, kids start connecting with their story. And their eyes start to glisten a little bit, and they get a lump in their throat. And I can see that as we're talking, and then I go, now you know what it's about, right? And they go, yeah. And it changes everything. And, and having that background, now coming to the Gospels, the Gospels are stories. And each author has a different perspective. There's something that the story's really about. There's a subtext to all these things. And that's particularly true with John. And, and as we come to John chapter 19, the, the close of, of this chapter, uh, it's an interim period. You know, if you look at John as a, as a story, How many of us are exhausted by the events of the previous verses in John 19? I mean, we just went through a trial. We went through seeing our Savior beaten to a bloody pulp. We've seen him carry his cross. We've seen him crucified. We've seen people arguing and debating. Are we just emotionally drained? We are. And so it's almost that these last few verses are are not a break, but they're a pause. But they're very important verses in terms of the story. From a practical standpoint, if you've been following it, you're, you're involved with Jesus, and, and uh, we've kind of reached a climax with the crucifixion, but there's some unanswered questions. There's resolution that we need. One of the most natural things is, so what happens to Jesus now? He's there hanging on a cross. Well, practically speaking, we need to know. But then there's a forensic reason that all four gospels contain this particular event because there's a case to be built it's not just about the death of jesus but it's about his resurrection and we need to know that jesus rose that there's no other alternative except that jesus came back to life 
And so that's what this resolves. Because we're going to see that forensically there's a person and there's a place and there's witnesses to the fact that Jesus was taken from the cross and he's put in a very specific place, a tomb, that everybody could see, everybody could know about. And he was there from Friday night all the way through Saturday up until Sunday morning and then he was gone. And and that's very, very important. Now, as I'm looking at the Gospel of John, I, I, Kenny's just given me some great passages. I have to thank you for that, because every one of them I've just gotten so enmeshed with, and, and just it's kind of preoccupied my life for the last three weeks in studying for it. But there's something about John, I, I was re, I, I, to kind of get me into this idea, what's John really trying to get across? I went back and I read 1 John. Um, when I had to enter into seminary, you have to take an entrance exam for Greek. And it's interesting because, you know, Paul's Greek, he makes up words. Uh, he, was, he was very scholarly, and his Greek is a little bit more complex. But John's Greek is the simplest Greek in the New Testament. John wasn't the scholar that Luke was, that Paul was. He just wants to tell a very simple story. And in 1 John, if if you read through that book, you see basically the same theme coming over and over again. And and the theme of John is love one another. If God so loved you, how can you not love your brother? How can you say that you love God and hate your brother? That's the argument he goes over and over with. Tradition tells us that John, because he was the celebrity, he was the superstar, he was the last surviving apostle, and he was, whenever he came to a church, people would clamor. He's, he, this is a guy that saw Jesus. He spent time with him. But every time that he'd get the people together and he'd gather them there, they'd ask him to preach, obviously, because he was the most committed. And his sermons were always very short. Basically, one phrase. Love one another. And then he'd sit down. That's the message that John's trying to get across. Now, one of the passages that I was fortunate enough to preach on earlier in this series was about Jesus and his family and the fact that his family and he had a breach. They had a break more because of them than Jesus. But they were very angry with him because he was getting the Jews upset and they were clamoring and they were trying to make sure that that uh, he didn't do that anymore. And then we don't see the family again for the rest of Jesus's ministry. They're not mentioned because Jesus has a new family. His disciples. And the next time we meet Mary, his mother is at the foot of the cross. Because this is the heart of John. This is what the story is really about, is is reconnecting, reconciliation. And so there at the cross, Kenny talked about this last week, Jesus acknowledges his mother. They might not have spoken up until that point, but she couldn't miss this. She, She had to be there for her son. And Jesus doesn't ignore her that some of us might do, feeling hurt or like, you know, you turned your back on me and now that I'm dying, now you're here. Jesus doesn't do that. He has compassion on his mother. And he he says, John, take care of her. She's now your mother. Take care of her. A loose end is being tied together, a loose end of love, of reconciliation, of making things happen. Later on in John chapter 21, we're going to see the same thing happen with Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times and then he's gone. Can you imagine denying Jesus three times and then he's dead? And now what do you do? There's no no hope, it seems, of reconciliation there. But Jesus comes back. But there's an elephant in the room. 
Peter's there, and he denied him three times. Jesus takes him aside, walks along the Sea of Galilee. He says, do you love me? Peter's like, he's convicted by that. Like, I, I do, but I know that it doesn't seem like I did because I denied you three times. And three times Jesus takes him through that, reconciling himself to Peter, forgiving him for his failure. So I share all that by way of background because I think we have something very similar here in the account that Jesus, uh, John's going to give us about what happens to Jesus' body and the characters that he shares with us. So uh, let's put up the, the, the passage. Let me read it for you. Okay? Now, I'd, I'd hope that we could highlight some of the verses. Apparently, we weren't able to do that because as we go through, we're going to look at John's account but we, g- we gain so much more background and understanding of this passage when we compare it to the three other gospel accounts. They have a lot of things in common, but they're all very unique and different. John's is very different because he includes a character that the other three don't, Nicodemus. So let's read it. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Now, this is unique because the other accounts don't even mention Nicodemus. But he's mentioned here, and I think for a very important reason. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And that phrase at night is important because why? Because he went in secret. He, he, Nicodemus and Joseph are both members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. They're leaders. They have a lot at stake. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the, in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to where the tomb of Jesus actually is. If you go to Jerusalem, I, I've had the privilege of being there twice, uh, you can, there's what's known as the garden tomb, which looks like what you'd think the tomb should look like. There it's, 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 it's in this wall, there's trees and flowers, and there's this big stone, and it just looks right. But the location doesn't fit the geography of what we know about the New Testament. And so it's like, I don't know if you can imagine it, but there's this church. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. But it's like Christian Disneyland. And I mean that because that's what it was like to me. Because there are so many churches and chapels jammed into this, basically about an acre of space. It's just mind-boggling. And you have... Greek Orthodox with incenses, and you have these urns that are swinging back and forth, and candles everywhere, and shrines, and it's just amazing. I want to give you kind of a picture of of what this is like. The next slide is, uh, this is basically what it probably was in Jesus' day. So you have the wall. Golgotha was outside the original wall of Jerusalem. The wall that exists now was built hundreds of years later during the Crusades, and it was built further outside. It was expanded the city limits. And so you have Golgotha, which was this hill, and then adjacent to it is where they believed the tomb was. And so you can see the, the opening there on the, on the left. Okay, So this is what 
they think uh, it was like. So the cross and the tomb literally are within a stone's throw of each other. They were very nearby. And, and that's important to us because Joseph had a lot to do in a very short time. Basically, Jesus probably died about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's when all these details were being taken care of. And he only had about an hour and a half to take the body down and deposit in a tomb before the Sabbath began. Not a very big window. And so how could he do that? Well, it's because the tomb that he procured was so close to where Jesus was. Okay, the next slide. This is kind of an overview of, that's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And you can see in the right, the cross, that's where they believe Golgotha was. And within the same huge room, this huge open space, then the tomb is off to the left. And they've got this shrine over it, inside of a shrine, and... It's, 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 I don't know, it's just such a, what a, a profound experience for me of queuing up with thousands and hundreds of pilgrims and walking down into where they believe Jesus' body was actually laid. And this is what it looks like today inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This was my, my experience. The next slide. You can see this, this huge superstructure. And then this inside the one of, of that's where the tomb actually is, and you go down into where they believed uh, Jesus' body was laid. So it was, it was a profound experience, and it, it seems so real, and, and, and how close these two locations are to one another. Okay, now, I want to take a look at the other three accounts very quickly, and then we'll get into the heart of the message here, the application. So let's look at Matthew's account, and kind of compare it, kind of keep things in our head. Next slide. Okay, so this is what Matthew says. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Matthew's body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Now Matthew adds a detail that John didn't, and that is Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. That's important from a forensic standpoint because it's important that we know that they go to the correct tomb. If they go to the wrong tomb and it's empty, what could we argue? We could argue that the tomb was empty not because Jesus rose, but because it was empty in the first place and they just made a mistake. But the Marys knew exactly where the tomb of Jesus was. Let's take a look at Luke's account. I'm sorry, Mark's account. It was the preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if, Mark, I mean, if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb, cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And, and he adds the same detail. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. And a lot of emphasis here. Mark's account was typically, typically written for Roman readers. That was his audience. That was portraying. And so the idea of getting this expert testimony from a centurion, every Roman would take the word of that man, that Jesus was indeed dead. And then finally, let's look at Luke's account. 
Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. And he also adds the detail of the women. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandments. That's my hope in the next few minutes to t- tie some of these accounts together to, to kind of build a case for what I'm trying to, to get across, what, what I got out of this passage. You'll notice that the title of the message today is It's Never Too Late to Do the Right Thing. And I've got an asterisk that I'll explain at the end. Uh, I'm, very, I'm not usually comfortable using absolute terms. Never, you mean there's never a time, there's not one single time that it's wrong to do the right thing? that it's never too late. And so I'll take that into account. But I believe that that the heart of this passage is that for Joseph of Arimathea, that that for Nicodemus, John wants to get the point across for all of us that it's never too late to do the right thing. Now there's three things that I would hold forth as always right to do. Times as Christians that we need to hold on to and guide us in our daily activities. Three things that it's always right to do. Again, another absolute term. And uh, we might find exceptions. But I think it's for the sake of, of really underscoring this. We need to grasp that idea. It's always right to do these things. The first thing that I want to point out. And that we'll look at Joseph in this particular case. Is it's always right to stand up. It's always right to stand up and be counted for the cause of Christ. It's always right to do that. Joseph had not done that. Joseph had basically, it says in in one of the accounts, that he had uh, basically worshipped and followed Jesus in private. It was a secret. He was afraid of the Jews. It um. He was, he was fearful of them. That's what John tells us. When you read the other accounts, they all have the trial. The Sanhedrin was all gathered together. The Sanhedrin were this council of Jewish leaders. And they heard testimony. And a lot of it was false. Joseph was in the midst of these people. He heard the testimony. And then it came time to vote. They were a jury. Mark leads us to believe that that they were unanimous in their decision. But Luke tells us, if we go back to his account, he was an upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. I looked at that word, uh, consented, in in the Greek, and it's soon katatithemi. That's just to impress you a little bit. Um, If you need to know what it means exegetically, I'm sure Brittany could help you with that afterwards. But what it literally means is to vote with someone. And so I would imagine that the vote was taken not with hands, but by chards of of pottery. That's how a lot of votes were done. There was a a yay pot and a nay pot. And so in the midst of all this, he basically didn't consent, but he didn't stand up. 
He didn't protest. He didn't make a case for the fact, what are we doing? This is, this is the, the, that expression, waiting for the kingdom of God. These were people that were devoutly waiting and, and anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Joseph believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet when the moment of truth came, he folded. He, 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 didn't, he didn't stand up. It's interesting because in Mark's account, it says, um, was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Mark's the only one that includes that detail. Boldly. And it's not this idea of, you know, like, Batman or Superman coming on and saving the day, it's, it's kind of a different tone, an undercurrent to this word. It's basically overcoming your fear and finding the courage in yourself to go forward, even when it's difficult. And I love that that's what it says about Joseph. It's too late. Jesus is gone. And so you would think it's too late for him to, to do anything, to make it up. But John is telling us it's not too late. Because he's going to be the one that goes and, and asks Pilate for the, for the body. And that is a statement that you have to understand. He was basically identifying himself as family, as kin with Jesus. And everyone would know about it. It would be public record. And so he stands up. Jesus is gone in his mind. He doesn't know that what's going to happen in two days. But in his mind, Jesus, but this is at least now he can stand up for the man that he believed was the Messiah. It wasn't too late. And so he takes that body and he, at a great cost to himself, a, 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 a tomb hewn out of rock was very expensive. Only the very wealthy could afford it. Joseph was wealthy, but he, he sacrificed that, a place that he would lay himself. No, he was going to give that up for Jesus. This, this hits home to me so clearly. I became, because I would imagine that some of us here today would have to acknowledge I'm a, I'm a hidden Christian. I'm a secret Christian. I don't want people at work to know. I don't want people at my social group to know. I hide the fact. I'm embarrassed. I'm afraid of what they'll do. I'm afraid that I won't fit in. Joseph was that guy. I was that guy. I became a Christian in eighth grade. A woman led me to Christ in my neighborhood. And I remember... Um, she led a lot of kids to Christ. And I lived right down the street, and anytime she led a kid to Christ, she would uh, call and say, dude, come on up, I want you to meet so-and-so, they just became a Christian. And I, my mom, go on up, you got yourself into this. And so I, I'd go up, and, and Marilyn Bibero was her name, and Marilyn would say, Duke, so-and-so just put their faith in Jesus Christ, and I wanted them to confess that to someone, and you're the closest. So the person would say, yeah, I just accepted Christ as my Savior. And I didn't feel joy. I didn't feel happiness. I felt embarrassment. Well, that's great. Why am I here? I was a secret queer Christian. All through eighth grade, all through ninth grade, I attended church occasionally, all through my sophomore year, I was a secret Christian. And there was one guy that was a senior when I was a sophomore, and he, he was, uh, we were in acting together, and he'd drive me home after rehearsals from, from the plays. And uh, we'd talk about God. He'd, he was 
just a, a, a real terrific guy, but is an atheist. And he asked me one time, do you believe in God? And I said, yeah, I, I believe in God. He said, really? That's crazy. And I go, well, no, yeah, let me meet this a little bit. I, I, I. <laughs> what I remember very clearly, though, is I was talking with Tom. I didn't stand up. I didn't own my Christianity. I didn't challenge him. That summer, my friend Tom was killed. He was with some friends. They were backpacking and hiking and up the coast, and uh, four of them. And a guy came back, and they were sleeping on a beach in Santa Cruz. They were murdered. I didn't stand up for Tom. And I remember going to his funeral, and I remember I probably feeling a lot like Joseph of Arimathea. You know, there's Jesus. It's too late now. What am I going to do for Tom? There was nothing I could do for Tom. But it wasn't too late. Because at that moment, I understood that either I do this, either I'm going to live for Christ, and I'm gonna, or I've got to come out. I've got to come into the light. I, people need to know what I believe. If this is real, they've got to know it. And if it's not, then I've got to give it up. I can't, I can't walk in the shadows anymore. And so if you look at my yearbook, I just found we had a reunion recently, and so they wanted it. And, but I was going through it, and to the praise of God, Almost everyone in there says something, whether it's derogatory or laudatory, about my faith. If you look at the pictures of me in my yearbook, every one of them, I'm wearing this big button that says, Jesus is the way. Now, you, I mean, you may as well have a sign and he says, beat me up. <laughs> but I wore that button every single day. I, I've, I, sometimes I forgot that I had it on and I was going, you know, go to the grocery store and they'd go, what's that saying? And I go, Oh, uh, yeah, Jesus is the way. <laughs> but I stood up, and it changed my life. And I got picked on. I remember one time I was in a class my junior year, and there was a, this world history teacher, and he was dragging on the Catholic Church and this, that, and the other, and it's all hypocrisy, and they're all hypocrites, and it's all from lies and, and, and myths and, and all this stuff, and I... I raised my hand, and all the kids were going, no, no, don't do it, Duke, don't do it, Duke. I said, excuse me, Mr. Wilson, I have to disagree with you. Because Jesus Christ has changed my life. What? And you could have seen the eyes bulge out of his head. And he lashed into me and, and tore into me, and I just took it. My face was beat red. I, I felt about this big. Afterwards, one of the kids came up and said, hey, Duke, I, I just want you to know, I believe like you do. like thanks a lot <laughs> he didn't stand up but i understood i didn't judge him because i hadn't stood up for the first three years of my christian life either it's always right to stand up you might say well duke you don't understand i i, I i've been kind of under the uh, in the closet for so long as a christian it's it's never too late it's never too late don't have that regret the second thing it's always right to do is make amends. Make amends. It's so interesting to me that John includes Nicodemus in his account because the other three don't. But there's a loose end that needs to be tied up. An act of grace, an act of, of mercy on the part of our Lord 
Nicodemus, remember in John chapter 3, comes to Jesus when? At night. Why? Because he too was afraid of the Jews. He has this remarkable dialogue with Jesus about being born again, and, and John's skeptical. He doesn't buy it. He doesn't, it we, and we don't hear from him again until right now. And it's almost as though John is telling us that, that Nicodemus is understanding that he blew it. Now Jesus is dead. What can I do for Jesus? He's gone. And this is very similar to standing up, but in Joseph's case, I, th- I mean, in, in Nicodemus's case, I think it's a little bit different. He needs to make amends. Now, what does that mean, to make amends? I, I looked this up. Amends, to do something to correct a mistake one has made or a bad situation one has caused. Any of you ever made a mistake? Any of you caused a scene? Messed things up pretty badly? Well, when we do that, the Christian thing to do, the mature thing to do, is try to make amends. Try to make things right. I've learned, because no one's made more mistakes than me, I'm pretty sure of it. I mean, I'm like a bull in a china shop when it comes to most of my relationships. I just marvel at Kenny. Because, I, I mean, every week the elders are coming to me saying, Okay, Duke, uh, what did you say to so-and-so after church last Sunday? Why, how did you say it? What happened? Because they're upset. It's kind of like school, too. What did you say to that kid? How did you say it? Okay, it's like. And what I'm finding is that I can just basically, well, they're oversensitive. They're this, they're that. I mean, it's ever halt. But more often than not, i got to admit, I did something wrong. I made a mistake. I made a mess. Now, making amends, I believe, involves three things. And I think this is what Nicodemus is trying to do when he buys 75 pounds of spices and materials to prepare Jesus' body. That's a statement, isn't it? 75 pounds. This is expensive. But it's an act of contrition, I believe, on the part of Nicodemus. It's an act, it's an act of, I, I didn't acknowledge you as being the Savior in life, but now in death, even though it seems too late, I'm going to try to make amends. I'm going to acknowledge your royalty. I'm going to acknowledge that you're the Messiah by giving you a burial fit for a king. Three things, I believe, are involved in making amends. First of all, you have to say, I'm sorry. Those are hard words, aren't they? I'm sorry that I said so-and-so. I'm sorry that I did this. I'm sorry that I didn't do this. I'm sorry. That opens the conversation. And please, when you say I'm sorry, never, and this is an absolute term, and I'm fully aware of it, never say I'm sorry and then put the conjunction but. Because that disqualifies. They will not hear anything They won't hear the I'm sorry. They will hear, but it was your fault because you did that. Don't do it. Don't do it. You have to say I'm sorry. And then we make ourselves very vulnerable because now we have to put ourselves at risk. Will you forgive me? Now, just because you ask for forgiveness, does that demand forgiveness on the part of the other person? No. No. That's why it's such a terrifying thing to ask for forgiveness. Sometimes people aren't ready to forgive. 
Sometimes you will never receive that. But it's important that we ask for it anyway. And then the third thing in making amends, is there anything I can do to make it right? Is there anything I can do to to ease your pain? To to show you that I'm sincere, that I, I want a new start? Is there anything I can do? Sometimes there will be, sometimes there won't be. But that's how we make amends. Now the last thing that I want to talk about, it's always right to stand up for Christ. It's not easy to do. It's always right to make amends. And it's always right to express love. Always right to express love. You know, I think about these women. And they don't need to make amends. Jesus knew that they loved him. They devoted themselves, and they were faithful all the way through. They'd been with him in Galilee. They'd been through him through thick and thin. And they were with him at the cross. And now their Savior is gone. And they're so conflicted. They're just, you can imagine their heartache. But even in their heartache, they're not thinking about themselves. What are they thinking about? They're thinking about how much they love Jesus. And how can they express that love? Even now that he's gone, how can they do that? And they can do that by taking care of him in the funeral sense, in those those last rites that Jews did. And even with 75 pounds of stuff that Nicodemus bought, they still, whatever meager resources they had, went out and bought still more. And that was their intent on Sunday morning to go to the tomb to address his, t- his body one more time because they loved him. My mom and dad have been gone for too long. I miss, I miss him so much. You know, my dad and I have the same birthday, and so now every birthday comes around and he's not there. It just really tears at me. I miss him so much. But I think of them sometimes, and, and, you know, we didn't always have the best relationship, and it was hard and difficult, but you know what? I mean, I find myself, even today, trying to do things to express my love for them. Something I do for a person. I mean, I always open the door for people, because my mom, she was a stickler about that. Everett Scott. That's my real name, by the way. <laughs> I didn't know that until I was in the fourth grade. I just thought it was a swear word. Everett Scott, you know, do this or do that or whatever. And it's like, and, and so, uh, you know, I'll get the door for someone and, th- and people kind of look, because they're not used to it. And they, well, thank you. And I go, I'm doing this for my mom. Mom, I'm, this is for you. How do you express love? Well, I mean, some practical things. I mean, have you read the, the Five Languages of Love? Have you read that book? I mean, the most important thing in, in expressing love is knowing how people want love expressed to them. If they're your family member, if they're your spouse, if there's someone you really care about, the five languages are giving gifts. One way that people know that they're loved is when they get gifts. I'm not that way. I mean, I love getting gifts. Don't misunderstand me. But that's not my language. But, but it's still a, a thoughtful thing. We tend to also, uh, the way we want to be loved is how we love people. Isn't that true for most of us? Like, if you like getting gifts, that's how you show that you love people, by giving gifts. But that's not everybody's language. Quality time. And that's not five minutes here and there. That's just really giving them time. Words of affirmation. That's one that's hard for me because I didn't get a lot of affirmation growing up. 
And so it's hard for me to, to get out of that and, hey, great job. But I'm seeing that it's like a drop on a parched land. It's like, have you ever put a drop on a crumpled up straw? Ever done that at a restaurant? Do that, Dale, do that for your kids. It'll really impress them. Because you put it on there and it's all scrunched up. You put a drop of water, <laughs> it spreads out. It just, it just gets big. That's what affirmation does. Acts of service. Physical touch. Just putting your hand on somebody's shoulder, their arm. No, write a note. Send flowers. Express gratitude. Keep anger at bay. <laughs> Who would have thought that could express love? Instead of getting mad like you could, you just let it go. Be forgiving. That's how we express love. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now. And I want to close by explaining the asterisk. It's never too late to do the right thing. Um, Winston Churchill said this, and I, I thought it was pretty cool. I, I know I'm an American because this relates so much to me. Winston Churchill said, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> Duke always tries to do the right thing after he's tried everything else. The asterisk, and I know we have a real thing about filling in blanks here. That's why I only had five of them today. Doing the right thing does not guarantee the desired result. If you are going to make it a precondition to doing the right thing, no matter what the time is, based on your certainty that you'll get the result you want, don't waste your time. It's right to do it just because it's right to do it. And if you put expectations, I, I mean, I can tell, I can paint pictures for you of times where I thought, okay, I'll do the right thing. I'm going to go to that person and I'm going to make amends with the f expectation that because I was willing to humble myself, I was willing to say I'm sorry, I'm asking for forgiveness, I'm, I'm basically humbling myself to that degree, I'm willing to do anything, that they are now obligated to do what I've asked them to do. And because I have that expectation, how do I react when they say, I'm not ready? Do I say, okay, no problem. Or because I have an expectation, do I get upset and angry? I have resentment. The complete opposite of what doing the right thing will bring about. If you're doing the right thing for the right reason, the byproduct of that is not resentment. The byproduct of that will be peace. It will be a sense of joy. The only thing I know in my life with absolute certainty is that God is with me when I am doing right. Now, that doesn't mean everything's going to work out the way I want it to. Do you get that? I need to hear an amen to that. Because many of us are going to go out of here thinking, okay, yeah, it's never too late to do the right thing, and you're going to go off like Don Quixote on your tilting at a windmill and say, well, the pastor said, if I do this, then this is what will happen. No, I didn't say that. What I said was, it's never too late to do the right thing. Asterisk. It's not guaranteed that you'll get what you want as a result of it. But here's what I have to say. This is what I'm going to close with. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. 
Because I think that's the difference between a Christian who really wants to know God and walk with God and see God in their life and cowards and chickens and people that are never going to make a difference in the world because they're not willing to do what's right, no matter what the time says, no matter what the clock. Does the enemy ever tell you, it, it, it won't do any good, it's no use, it's too late, it's this, that. Do you ever hear those voices? I do all the time. And that's why I chose the title that I did. It's never too late to do the right thing. So just do it.